Um, I put the chart from last week up on the board again just by way of review of some of the context that we did last week. We are not going to go back over all the details of it, but but the essence of it is that, that we know that the writing of this book took place when? What did we discover? Probably, we actually didn't date it, I don't think, last week. But yes, let's go ahead and do that. We know that it was... Uh, probably 51 or 52 is the time frame they're, they're saying. Is that correct? 51 to 52 A.D. Um, and we do know there was another writing also, correct? Which is? First Thessalonians, which is a, a given, right? So there's the writing of First and, uh, first and Second Thessalonians by what author? And where was he writing from? Probably from Corinth. Do you remember where in Acts we see Paul with Silas and Timothy after he's been to the Thessalonians and birthed that church? Do you remember? Acts, close, 18, very close, 18.5, that's right. But you were really close, Debbie. That was awesome. Um, we, we saw that, so in Acts 17, he preaches to the Thessalonians and they come into faith, Right? And then in uh, Acts 18.5, we see they're actually listed together showing us that, Paul, that uh, Silas and Timothy have come back and rejoined. Now, in between there, in between the time when he birthed the church in Acts 17 and when we see them back together in Acts 18, there's an event that takes place that we see an insight on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. What did we learn in 1 Thessalonians about Paul's love for this Thessalonian church that was birthed? What had he done? What had he asked Timothy to go do? Go and check on them. So you see that record in 1 Thessalonians so that you know then that in between the time of them being birthed and whatever, why was Paul checking on them? Who were, what was going on for these people? There was persecution. Now, um, although I think that if you had done the book of Acts, as most of us did, you really get that understanding. Because what all had happened with Paul, we, we read and studied through that, seeing him being chased from Thessalonica to the point that the Thessalonian unbelievers... Those who didn't, had not come into faith, they were so angry at Paul. They, they weren't happy enough just to chase him out of town. But what did they do? They chased him all the way to Berea and then tried to stir up the, the masses there as well. So these um, unbelievers in Thessalonica, where this little baby church has just been birthed, are amongst some really aggressive unbelieving people. They are very angry about this, this faith system that has come into their town, right? So we, but we also get a hint of it, don't we, by some key words that are given to us right here in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, right? So apparently, would you say that the persecutions have continued? Apparently so. Now, we can only let our imaginations go on this just a little bit, but it probably doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to consider some of the problems that this brand-new baby church is encountering there. If they were so aggressive that they, that they were willing to pack up 
basically, and go all the way to the next town to continue to persecute Paul and Silas and Timothy for their gospel message, if they were so angry about the message itself, then you can just imagine that once that dust settled, Paul has been swept away. I think he went, after that, he went on to um, Athens, right? While he was at Athens, he sends Timothy to check on them. But, but knowing that all of this kind of hatred and um, turmoil is going on for this church, you get a real good sense of what's going on and why even this letter has been written. Does that context not, then when you jump into Second Thessalonians, you start to see him immediately begin to address the subjects that he does in this chapter. All of a sudden, that starts to gel. And, and it's like, no wonder he had to write back about this, right? So we're, what we're going to do, having kind of set that, and we've got this up here by way of review. Last week, we also we were introduced to this man of lawlessness by doing the big overview. We get the, in, to him in our next chapter. We see also the mention of the subject of that kingdom of God, correct? We're going to look again at that, I think, a little bit this morning, at least by, by passing. Um, how many of you know when it speaks about the kingdom of God, what that exactly is speaking of? How many of us can kind of explain, if somebody were to ask you about the kingdom of God, would you be able to articulate to them what time frame in history we were speaking of? Thousand year reign, that's exactly right. Now, having studied Ezekiel, we have a really good understanding about what God is doing in that time frame of the thousand years. Can, can somebody kind of concisely tell us what, what it is that God, why is God going to give them a thousand year reign on this earth? Why is there going to be a kingdom of God on earth? Why? For the Jews, basically. Okay. Okay, because God want, wants to be their king and to rule over them, all right? Okay, there's going to be a time frame when, of course, that you're introducing a little different subject, but thank you, Susan, which is the fact that, the, that Satan will be bound during that thousand years. We learned that when we did our Revelation course, right? So during that thousand years, Satan is bound. The people are living on the land, and the people of the earth are continuing life. And um, you're right, no longer can man, when the next thing in history comes up, which is what? What comes up after the thousand years? That's right. This earth will be destroyed and there's that great white throne judgment. Then comes the new heaven and earth. At that great white throne judgment, God is going to put hold people accountable, right? So at that moment of accountability, he, he is able to show them through history, a thousand year reign, the devil didn't make you do it, right? That's one possible insight on that. Okay, but let's go back to the thousand years. Why the thousand years? What does this fulfill? Thank you. It fulfills a prophecy. And what was the prophetic promise that God gave Israel way back with Abraham? They would have a land, a seed, and a nation. And who is the seed? Jesus himself. We see that in Galatians chapter 3. That it... And the nations of the earth will be blessed, which is through 
Jesus, correct? Okay, but what about the, the land and the nation and them living securely upon their land? Had that ever actually happened? Not yet. There's never been a time in history yet where Israel has actually lived upon their land as they were supposed to. Not only had they not lived upon the land um, as far as in peace, but they also had not lived fully upon all the land. They had not even taken possession of the whole land that God had promised to them. Did you all know that? When you go into that Genesis 15 record, he gives a complete list of all the land areas where they were supposed to take possession but did Israel obey when they got on the land and fully possessed their land? No, they didn't. In that day, God says, he will do this for Israel. He will do it. Now, tell me why. Is it because Israel is so great? They're such a good people that God just, you know, they're special. It is for his name's sake. For my holy name, right? To vindicate my holy name. Now, that uh, reference of vindicating his holy name is also going to kind of come up a little bit when we look in chapter one again where we're going to see the uh, the righteous um work of god when he brings people into accountability right Uh, and when he puts israel back on their lane how does that when he puts them on their land and and completes that promise that covenant promise how does that vindicate him his holy name Yeah, because he actually will have fully completed exactly what he said he would do. At this point in history, God has not yet fully done for Israel what he promised he would do for them. So we're waiting for him to fully complete that that covenant promise because a covenant is a legally binding agreement, right? God makes it. He sealed it with his with his own um, with his own blood at the cross but he also sealed it when he walked between the pieces of flesh before abraham in that in that time when he kept that covenant with him so in in doing that there's that that picture that imagery that that there's an absoluteness about the promises of god that they are unbreakable and that they must be fulfilled so we're waiting for god to finish that work for israel so that kind of gives you what we're looking at right here on just this big timeline that i've drawn on the board where we start with the cross i make my little church house picture there and it just to show you the birthing of the church and we're in this time frame right here where the the birthing of the church is in in uh, in place, we are waiting for a time frame when the man of lawlessness will be revealed to us. That has not yet happened, and according to Thessalonians that we're looking at now, was there a question about that? Yes. What had what apparently had happened uh, for these people? Well, there was persecution, and somehow the persecution must have related to the man of lawlessness in their mind, right? So what had apparently happened in, in their, maybe either in their teachings or, or by... They had gotten a letter or a visit by someone stating that the rapture had already taken place. That the day of the Lord had come, right? That they were already in the day of the Lord. So this is what Paul's letter is now writing back to them. He's going to correct them about where we are in history. No, folks, you're not right here. In this time frame, you are here in this time frame. 
So you are not in the days when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. You are in the days of this thing called the church that, we have, that God had just birthed. And they, Thessalonians, were one of the very first churches. And we are watching and reading through these pages of having just done Acts and now entering into Second Thessalonians. This is really early in the birthing of that individual church and the birthing of the church on the whole, starting at Jerusalem with Acts chapter 2, right? All right, so that's context. That sets us, our mind back where we are in history. And now we're ready to tackle just chapter 1 of our uh, Thessalonians. Hold on, let me find my observation worksheet. Get it open. So your work this week was to basically go through and do an actual observation worksheet. That would be chapter 3 in your how-to study book. That is called focusing in on the details. In some ways, it's repetitive to doing um, uh, an overview. You do some of the same similar kinds of things. But now, instead of looking at the book on the whole, you are focused on just one chapter. What we did when we did our overview was set this context, which we just discussed, and we gave some kind of tentative titles to each of the chapters so we felt like we thought we knew what's kind of going on in each of the chapters. Um, the good thing about doing that initial overview week is that although you've titled your three chapters, you still do have the freedom to change those titles if you see that something either clarifies itself or becomes more important in, in the, the way that it presents itself once you break it down. Um, so your weeks, your... your um, chapter observations, focusing in on the details of each chapter now, gives you the opportunity to basically hone it down, clean it up, crystallize your thinking and your points. But in order to do that, it's just how many of you clean house, and sometimes your house looks like a bigger mess than when you started, when you're about halfway through it, right? So it's like cleaning the garage, everything has to come out, and it looks like you know, the world exploded or a bomb blew up in there or something, right? So that's kind of what we do when we're doing and focusing in on the detail. When you go into your chapter, it starts out by blowing it all up. What you're going to do is take everything out and categorize pieces, okay? And then once once you have thrown away the stuff that's excess, that's not that important, that you don't really need anymore, then you start putting things in little boxes and stacking it back on the shelf, right? Good analogy? Yeah, I think so. I I think the guys can relate to that one better than some of the other things. So that's what we're doing. We're cleaning the garage. We're going to get things all compartmentalized, put in its proper box, and set on the right shelf. So in order to do that, then we need to go through and do these processes. So the first thing we want to do, again, is look chapter by chapter, and we want to say, first things first, what is the most important thing that you need to do when you're looking at a... um, breaking down a chapter to see what's going on in it. Who would you look for first? The people, those major characters, right? So let's do this. Major people. So what do we see are the major people in chapter 1? Who are the major people in chapter 1? Well, we start with Paul, who is our author, right? And who's with him? 
Sylvanus and Timothy can go on there for those of you who feel like you really just can't put Paul up there alone. <laughs> but in essence, it's an author, correct? So our author is Paul. And then who else is of major importance in this book that, that you saw this week? Those recipients who are the Thessalonian believers, right? There's also Silas, that's right. You might want to just make yourself a note that that Sylvanus is also Silas. We didn't actually go in and look at all that, and she didn't have us do that even this week, I noticed. But for those of you who want to, go in and do, just do a word study on Sylvanus. When you do that word study, it's going to show you the connection that it breaks down, and it's Silas also, also referred to as Silas. It's kind of like a person who has a name Catherine, and sometimes they're called Kate or Kathy or... You know, it breaks it down smaller. So Sylvanus and Silas are the same. All right. And there is yet one more people group that if you did your work this week, it would have come up very clearly. Who is it? Those who are doing the afflicting or the persecuting, right? And by definition, um, if you wanted to show them in a real concise way, those who are afflicting... And how else are they defined? Unbelieving. Unbelieving. They do not know God. Now that makes it pretty evident then that we have a contrast going on here, don't we? These two people groups become a contrast. One of the things that you were asked to do this week was to look at uh, contrasts and comparisons. So let's do that. Right now, we'll start our list of contrasts by contrasting uh, the believers and those who do not know God. Okay, and we, let me see if I've got, um, that would be like verse 10 maybe could be used and verse 8. Now, if you have different verses, that's fine, but that those ought to at least give you the the information on your sheet. Now, tell me, for those of you um, who are learning this, you need to understand, what is the purpose for doing, con- looking for and marking contrasts and then stating them in this kind of a very clear way? Why would we bother with doing contrasts? Is it just for the sake of doing something fun? Because <laughs> we think it's so much fun. What do contrasts do for us? Okay, it's to clarify a point, okay? Any other thoughts? Okay, well, as we develop this list of contrasts, what's going to happen for us is we're going to begin to see what the real battle is or what the real problem is or what the real point is in the chapter 1 record. The things that he has said in here are going to start to come much more clearly for us as we look at contrasts. Each contrast is going to continue to build and emphasize, and what's going to eventually happen is you're going to see that there's really one major point that's going on in here through looking at these contrasts, okay? Now, that is not always true in every book, but in many books it is. How are you going to know whether looking for contrasts or comparisons are going to be helpful to you? 
by doing it. Good job, Celeste. You do get the star for the day. I say that, and I know it kind of sounds silly, but I want to say it because, honestly, every step in the process of doing inductive work is just exactly that. Sometimes you do the step, and you produce nothing. And you go, okay, I just spent a lot of time doing that word study and come to find out that that word but means but, you know. I mean, it, it's, it, it, doesn't, it didn't clarify anything. Faith meant faith or whatever. You're, you don't clarify it very much by having done your word study. But sometimes you do a word study or you make a, a contrast list. And all of a sudden, in, after you've started this contrasting, 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 as you get move along down towards the bottom, all of a sudden, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. What this whole chapter is all about. Sometimes it just totally clarifies your insight on things, crystallizes it for you, okay? So we're going to develop this as we move through looking at the next major thing, which are keywords, right? Because that's your next thing. You've looked at your major people. That's going to be your author and your recipients, Paul and the Thessalonian believers, and the other people group are those unbelievers, those who do not know God, those who are bringing affliction, right? Okay, so tell me what other keywords then did you mark for just this chapter? Because you, what happens is when we went through the first time we did the book overview, there were keywords that we marked. But then when you go in and you're just focusing on the chapter, there might be additional words that are going to pop up that seem to be important in that particular uh, chapter alone. So what do you have for keywords for chapter one? Afflictions, persecutions, or suffering. Okay. Faith. Faith. All right. Okay, judgment and what were. Right, right. And what's very interesting about that, and, uh, and that's good, once you realize, is the word judgment actually there? Because that one I missed. Um, he talks in verse 5. In verse five okay, it's a plain, God's righteous judgment. Now, this is really interesting because God's righteous judgment, um, from what you see in chapter 1 so far, and considering all that we did in our homework this week, God's righteous judgment, does he only judge these unbelievers? There's another judgment as well, right? So we're going to put the word judgment, and I'm going to put on here God's righteous judgment. And instead of just the word judgment, because I think what's going to happen by doing that is you're going to be able to then broaden the subject of judgment, of not just being judgment in the case of this, this particular chapter 1, but you're going to see that there is actually a judgment that is, that is going to take place for all, correct, in, in time. Now, they're very different judgments, are they not? Yeah, that's hallelujah, right? Aren't we glad? <laughs> for those of us who already know the end of this story, we're going, yes. Uh, for, the, for those who still are developing their insights about what is this talking about, I don't know what this really means, you're going to see as we develop this further um, in this lesson. Okay, so there's going to be judgment or God's righteous judgment. What, another word? Any other subjects? 
Okay, worthy. And who is the worthy? Who is the emphasis on worthy? Worthy. Their worthiness. And no, spell that right. Is that with a Y? It is with an I. I had it that way the first time, and then. Okay. That's close enough. Okay, so their worthiness, all right? Yes, it does become a subject, doesn't it? When we start to look at the worthiness, and what we find out is that, that there is obviously... I mean, well, what's the implication there? Well, because they're enduring, and they're faithful, and they're going through, um, you know, sticking to Jesus for the sake of the word, that they are worthy of God's righteousness. Oh, good. Okay. So what, it's gonna, what it shows you then is what about the subject of salvation and faith? Some people are worthy and some people are not worthy. Okay. So then that can be a real challenging question, can it? Because it can almost sound like then there's some kind of an earning in a relationship with God, right? So we're going to have to clarify that, right? Well, I mean, okay, very good. So what you've done is you've gone to that next step, and you've said no because what is the subject matter here, correct? All right, thank you. Very good. Okay, wow, James, that was good because you actually reasoned it through. One of the conversations we had um, this week with, with another group was we talked about people's ability to, to reason through things and, and have that cognitive level of reasoning, it, we really have stopped using it in America, sadly. And we don't really teach our children very well, even in school systems. Particularly when I was a kid, it was fill in the blank on everything. And it was just memorize what's on the board and, you know, by rote, put it back on the paper. And then you either get 100% or you don't, right? But what we want to do is we want to reason through and we want to ask the questions, well, who's worthy and why are they worthy, right? So that's when those wonderful questions of who, what, why, when, where, and how start to come in. And you have to start applying them to each point. When you have a question that comes up in your mind, the rule is you never, never violate your known doctrine. Craig and I talked about this doctrine thing this morning. We're talking about biblical doctrine, what God says about that subject. That's what we're speaking of. The biblical doctrine on a specific point would be, in this case, they're being judged as to whether they're worthy or not, right? But this worthiness is in relationship to being at his coming and something that's going to occur at that time, right? It is not related, however, to the other subject, which would be salvation, correct? Because we're not talking about us earning or being worthy. Are any of us worthy? Exactly. Okay, very good. Wow, you did a good job on that, James. That's the whole point of grace. We're not worthy. Exactly. It's by grace you are saved through faith that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works. At least any man should boast. Okay, yes. Right, and, and that's the subject that we want to pull it to. Very good, Carrie. So that's, that's one of those reasoning things because sometimes you can hit a spot like this and you can stumble over it and go, wait, 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 wait. Why do you have to be worthy? I thought you aren't worthy. I thought it's by grace. I thought, you know, you start 
asking. So this is where the inductive Bible study process is helpful for you coming to sound interpretation because now what you do is you go back to who are we talking to, at what, what is it that they're being counted worthy of, right? Where in the pr- progress of things are we? Well, we already know that here they were birthed. They received their salvation back here when Paul gave them the message. We are now some time later, a a year or two maybe down the road, and now he's writing back to them and he's talking about a day when the Lord is going to return and that the Lord would find them worthy at that moment in history, at that time. So we know that they've already received salvation. It's not talking about worthiness of salvation, is it? Isn't that awesome to see how you can reason that through and talk it out in your mind? But you have to take it there. And there's a lot of people who don't. They'll drop in, they'll read that, and they'll go, "Uh uh-huh, see, you have to earn your salvation. So we've clarified that point. That was very quick. All right, so now, and and if you wanted to really develop that subject, you could, and we are not going to do that this morning. But I bring it up because I do think it demonstrates a really good... uh, um, opportunity to just say, reason it through, take it back a step or two, think of who's being, ask those who, what, why, when, where, and how questions about that subject, and never violate your known doctrine, okay? All right, what other subjects have we got? Keywords. Glorify. glorify. Excuse me, glorify, okay? Glorify or glory. All right. The gospel. Yes. Okay, the gospel or the testimony. The things which Paul has been teaching to them is has become a major theme in this book on the whole, has it not? We've already seen that last week when we looked at it, that everything went back to um, the things that he had taught them, and they needed to recall those things which he had taught them previously, right? All right. Any others? Perseverance and enduring. That's right. We've got to have those. I know. Well, but, you know, it's... In- yeah, what you are, I, don't, I understand, but you're right. And you know what's interesting is that there are some chapters you'll go into and you only find two or three key words. But then there are other chapters you go into like this. And do you remember when we started on uh, Lesson Zero and I, st- I stood here and told you, you aren't going to believe how many subjects are in this little tiny three chapters. And every single subject are huge subjects that you could spend... Each one, like for instance, one of them is on spiritual warfare. We, there's a 12-week precept course on that subject. We're just going to kind of whisk right past it when we're doing our work here in this particular uh, book because it's not the major subject, but it is a subject that definitely presents itself, right? I think another key thing in this book on the whole, and I don't even think we're ever going to hit on it, but is sanctification. What you really see strongly in this book is the sanctification work of the believer, and so uh, knowing that, and it's kind of what we just talked about, this idea of worthiness, we started right here back in the context setting, understanding that they've already come into salvation. So salvation is a done deal. We're beyond that subject. We are now into the process of sanctification. 
right? So if you want to, it may be something that you might want to make yourself a note at the top of your observation worksheet that this is a book that's this, that is focusing on the sanctification of the believers, right? Because they're already established in faith. We are now, we're, we are now at that next stage. Is there any verse in here that kind of implies that to us? Is there anything in here that you see that kind of talks about that? Yes, in verse 11, because he, he says, and to this end also, this is what we are praying for you. What, what, what does it say there, uh, um, Celeste? The work of faith with power. So this work of faith is not working for your salvation, but it's the work of faith. It's the produce, the outflow, the, the fruit bearing that uh, Jesus spoke about so much when he was on this earth, about bearing fruit, right? And in chapter 2, then it uses the word faith. Yeah, oh, it does. Okay, good. I missed that. Oh, that's right. The sanctification by the Spirit. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Absolutely. I forgot about that. Excellent. Okay. So, sanctification then is our primary subject that's going on. The, the big, if you want to look at the big subject that's going on in this book, he's speaking about their sanctification. And then there's a sp- specific issue that's going on for them that is going to work out this sanctification in their life, this work with power. Okay. All right, now let's see. Let's go back then to looking at, we've got lots of subjects to work with here, right? So now that, let's go back to our contrasts and see if we can't develop how we see each of these subjects presented I- through contrasting. What, do we, what else did you see in there? We saw those who believe and those who do not. Um, believe is on here, isn't it? Faith, believe. Okay, yeah? Yes, you are. <laughs> it's all right. I am too. <laughs> I am slowly reeling you in. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I heard somebody over here saying something. Contrast? Anybody? Yes, Lois? Uh huh. Okay. Ooh, that's a good one. We'll give relief to you, and we'll deal out retribution. Okay, and so the relief was verse um, 7, and then dealing out retribution was like 8. Okay, good. Very nice. Good one. So just at this point already, we can see that in our contrastings, we're already starting to see a gel going on here. What else do we have? Yes. So those being afflicted and those afflicting. And those are in verse 6. Okay. Excellent. So your faith 
is greatly enlarged. And, but they don't know God. All right. All right, good. Okay, so I kind of had it twice almost. And it's almost, as, it kind of does one of these mingly things. Uh, you are going to be worthy of the kingdom, but they are going to be away from the presence of the Lord, right? So you worthy of kingdom, they away. And you can go on and expand on away from the presence of the Lord. So that's verse 9 for them that are going to be away from the presence of the Lord. And you, But you are worthy of the kingdom in verse 5. Uh-huh. Oh, that's good. That's a good one. I didn't put it quite that way, but that's good. Okay, so... Um, uh, is that the one in, I have verse 12, Christ will be glorified in you. Is that? Away from... Uh, his, how did you say that the believers are away from what? From his power. Okay, got it. Perfect. Okay, and that is verse 11, you said? Nine. And this, and this is 11. That's right. I knew that. Okay. Very good. Nice. Contrasting. Okay, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so the Lord will be glorified in the believers. Believers is which verse? Eleven. Okay, ten. And then the next one is the contrast was what? Okay. Good. Okay, and that verse is destruction. Nine again. Okay, got it. Yeah, and after a while, they kind of start to overlap one another. You can say them in a variety of ways. But in the end, by just doing contrasts and comparisons, what is it that you're seeing on the whole through this particular exercise of your inductive process? What do you see going on in this chapter one? There are going to be some that who, who will be in the presence of God and some who don't. Some who are worthy of the kingdom of God, some who are going to, who are going to have eternal destruction. Um, all right. And so what does that tell you about... Uh, what's going on? What is it that has taken him to want to engage in this conversation about what they have to look forward to down at the end? The, 
Okay, so there, there's something about persevering. They're going to need to persevere in order to attain to this place where, um, where not their salvation, but their, but their, uh, they're being considered worthy, number one, but also that they will really delight in that. And when we went into our cross-references, when we really got that expounded on and better clarified, right, when we did our cross-references in First Peter in particular, but also I think it was John and, um, and a couple of others, whatever they were, the other verses that we looked at. Okay, so let's, let's do this next then. Let's focus in on then what is the catalyst that started this whole issue that he even had to write back to him. What was going on was what? The persecutions and the suffering they were enduring. And apparently they had been deceived into believing that what had happened that the day of the Lord had already come. And so now, because we know the timelining of this, this church is only a year or two old, max, right? It's a baby Christian church. And not only is it a baby Christian church, it's also a baby Christian covenant that has been instituted. We're talking, having just come out of the old covenant, living under the law, as as far as Judaism was concerned, Many of these Thessalonians actually didn't even come out of Judaism. They were of the world. They were Gentile, right? So the, everything is brand new. It's not like you and me growing up in a Christian church where we have certain boundaries and understandings, right? They're learning everything brand new. So someone has come in and deceived them on this one subject about the day of the Lord. And it was significant destruction in, in its result because they had had stopped um, believing the things that they had been taught before by Paul. Did we see that last week that Paul had taught them things before, correct? And he says, you need to remember the things which I have taught you. Because having been deceived about this time frame in history, right? This coming of the man of lawlessness, this day of destruction. They thought they were in it. They had been deceived about that. And so they had now, with that in their mindset, how would that trip you up? If you were, had just come into this new thing, this new faith that is promising you rescue from that day, right? That you will not be condemned as the world will be condemned. That Jesus has come to save you from the wrath of God and from the uh, pouring out of his judgment upon the earth. And now you think you're in it. Can you understand how they might understand or think that they are in it? Um, yes, Craig. They obviously had to be confused because they they got a letter they thought was from Paul yeah. stating that the day of the Lord had already come. So somebody is out there just literally trying to confuse them. It seems like I almost suspect some of those unbelieving Thessalonians <laughs> in their midst that are just trying to... Or the Jews. Yeah, Right. Right, that, yeah, and that would include either or, exactly. The unbelieving world, you're right, is, is against them. As a matter of fact, do we have any insight in our cross-references that talks about who is it that seeks to devour us? Satan. So although we look to the unbelieving world, what do we know is at the root of that unbelieving world? Who is the real source of this destruction? 
Satan himself. Now, I think that's a significant point. When I know that, you know, like we look at our world today, we have a lot of stuff going on. Could you not, if, especially if you're not a believer, could you not say it looks like the world's coming to an end? It looks like we're going to have World War III. We're all going to have nuclear bombs going off. The whole world's just going to blow up, right? So if you don't have the knowledge of God's word and we know what the plan is, Hallelujah. Are you not thankful to know what the plan is? So that even though all this horrible stuff is going on with our world right now, we have a sense of peace in our heart, do we not? It's, it's an unex, undescribable or an, uh, even an unexplainable sense of confidence and peace because we know the world's not coming to an end. It, they, well... The world as we know it may come to an end, but not the world is not coming to an end. It's not going to be a nuclear bomb and everything's going to, you know, be gone. We have, we have the time frame of history laid out for us, and we know that one day God comes to rule and reign on this earth. And what's really glorious is the details of that. The restoration of this earth, it will become like it was in the days of the Garden of Eden. It's going to be lush. It's going to be fruitful. It's going to be peaceable. God is going to rule and reign from his throne in, in uh, Jerusalem. And we, his people, are going to rule and reign with him. Isn't it going to be glorious when the ruling and the reigning on this earth is going to be through the mind of righteousness rather than through the mind of the world? Um, and I do believe that because when we come back with Jesus, we will be coming back in our glorified bodies we will also have a fully renewed mind at that point. We will really understand the righteousness of God. I believe we'll have a fuller, deeper understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And we ourselves, the way um, we, we're doing this truth project right now, we're talking about perspectives on how you what you perceive to be even right and wrong in the world. You know, and how we can end up with not having a biblical view, but rather having a worldview about subjects. And how we get tricked into that in very subtle ways, actually. And a lot of it is through exposure to having the, the, the lies spilled at you for so long that you get convinced that that's truth, right? And so it's, I can't tell you how invaluable this is to us, how important it is for us to get our minds right, the renewing of our minds through the Word of God. So that God becomes the plumb line where we get our standards set. And then we, ha we can take everything else up and lay it next to the word of God and say, am I thinking correctly on this subject? When it comes to how I view this moral issue or this ethical problem or how our government is to operate or how marriages should be or how... Uh, families should operate, how all these things are in the world are, ba are the way that we view them are, should be based upon the word of God. And so as we're in this time of Bible study and we're looking at the Thessalonians and what they're going through, the, the major subject is their suffering because these sufferings have been coming upon them. It makes perfect sense having understood what had happened to Paul there, how they had come and persecuted him personally, but also had come in and tried to stir up even the whole town in Berea because they were so mad at him. And then knowing that those same, same angry mob went back to Thessalonica to live in their homes. And now th this is where these believers are perched, right in the midst of all this angry hostility. So we need to understand that these points that we're looking at here really apply to us too. What we want to do is renew our mind with God's word so we begin to think correctly 
about subjects that have to do with our everyday living. Today, we're going to focus now on suffering. We're going to look at suffering uh, and evaluate it through what God tells us about suffering. Our first reaction to the whole idea of suffering is what? Uh, Let's avoid that. Let's not go down that path, right? How, to what extent do we sometimes go even to try to avoid conflicts or struggles in our life? We really do. We go, we go to great extents. And um, I, can, I, I know that there have been things in my life that even I have gone to the Lord uh, with and, you know, for long periods of time, months and sometimes years prayed about certain issues that are huge struggles huge problems, huge adversities, huge suffering, right, for me and my family. And yet God does not remove them, right? And so you, you have to step back. If you don't have a biblical view on what God is doing in that struggle and what God's plan is for you as his child, then you can end up starting to do what? Getting angry at God. Doubting that God even loves you right? Doubting that God's hearing you. Can you, can you start to see the problem with a, with a poor understanding of a, a false esteem or a false understanding of God's principles about any one subject? This is just one subject in the Word of God. It's the subject of suffering. So we're going to look at it today, and we're going to use all these verses that, that Kay had us go and look at, and we want to talk about what we see about suffering. Let's just start with the plumb line. There are a couple of points made in First Thessalonians about suffering. Do you see any points that tell us why the Thessalonians are suffering? The question is why, right? Why suffering? Okay, it's an indication. Of God's righteous judgment. And what verse are you in? Okay. It goes on though to get so that I love that. Let's do that. Okay, there is a purpose, a purpose to the suffering then, so that what? Does God not know we're worthy? And how do, what makes us worthy in salvation? Jesus does, right? So what we have to say then is, okay, now, well, then what point is God making here at this, in this particular statement that, we, that in his righteous judgment, we are going to, there's, this is going to be a clear indication that his righteous judgment was righteous judgment of having done in us, which is giving us the Holy Spirit, that that was, the, that was a righteous and just thing, right? So here he's saying, you will be considered worthy then of what? Of the kingdom. Okay, so that's in five. And 
what led up to this? Drop down into verse 10 and tell me, what do you see in there that's, that there's kind of like a because thought in there? What is it that got them into this predicament of suffering to begin with? Yeah, they had believed, they had believed the testimony. They had believed the gospel or the testimony of Paul, correct? So that's kind of where the whole thing started, was the fact that they had believed the gospel. And now what we're looking at here is this, yes, Mm-hmm. You are being tested, and because you should know that you're being tested because you have God's Yes, yes. So, it, so we're going to get there. We're going to get there. You know, we ha- we want. That's going to say, how will suffering prepare us? Let's see, whoever Christian believes, I have that on here. But I, you know that that's an indication that God. We have suffering because God is teaching us. Yeah. That we have the Holy Spirit. We're being taught. Right. Okay. So, the so that's kind of the reason why 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 the suffering is. If you go to the cross reference, it's because you have the spirit in you to begin with, right? And that there. Yeah, I know. But that's in one of the Peter ones, probably. Okay. So, but before we go there, let's do this. Let's go. Let's start asking some of these questions so we can develop a good list on this. Um, the question is going to be here: Is must every Christian suffer? And so what we want to do is, although we could make it, a, it, well, we could be done. We could just say yes and move on, right? But, but if you want to build your doctrines, you need to know where does God say that and how does he say it and what is his, his way of teaching that to us in his word. Because again, like I just said a minute ago, we're trying to build those doctrines of understanding that we have a biblical view, not a worldview. We want our biblical view to be built. So... Must every Christian suffer? What does God say about that? So now you want to go into those cross-references, page 22 to 24 in your homework. You're going to look at John and um, 2 Timothy and 1 Peter. There are several verses that she gave you there, 22 to 24. So looking at those, what do you see about about the thought of does everyone suffer? And how does he say it? What does he? What does the the text say? What does the scripture itself show us in that? Okay, in this world, you will have. Does it say tribulation? And you're in which verse and chapter? Sixteen. I didn't hear fully. I, pro- I probably have it on my chart somewhere, but it's, it's faster if you guys just give them to me <laughs> than me stop to look for it. Okay, so in this world, you will have tribulation. So there's a statement that God's letting us know right up front. You will have tribulation in this world. Um, but he does follow it with, a, with an exhortation, though, doesn't he? What does he say, but? But take courage, what? 
Wow, that's a pretty emphatic statement. You have overcome the world. Now, what is the verb tense on that? It is a done deal. You have overcome the world. So how do we know? What is it that has happened that we have overcome the world? Jesus. He has become our our, uh, Savior, and he has also become... For us, the power in this world to do the overcoming, right? So he's given us his Holy Spirit. What did we learn in Acts about that? What, what, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, came upon them with power, right? And that power then gave them the, uh, the ability in that context to do their witnessing, right? And you will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So the Holy Spirit comes upon us with power. That same power, there's a verse in 2 Timothy that talks about, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but I've given you a spirit of of Power, love, and a sound mind, right? That power, that word power, if, and I know this is totally off our homework, but it's that word is dudamus, and it's the root word for the word dynamite. And when you see that, use, that word used in the scripture, one of the places it's used is in the resurrection of Jesus. So it's the same power is in you, is the same power which resurrected Christ from the dead. Isn't that an amazing thought? So although he's saying in this world you will have tribulation, he immediately follows it by giving you the exhortation, but, but take courage because I have overcome the world. He is the power living within you, and it's a done deal. So what is that? If you process all that we just looked at in just one little tiny verse, where are we at this point in our Christian view of how we handle suffering? Well, yeah, we're going to get there to the considering it all joy. And yes, you turn to the Lord. But what what has he told us in this one verse? Take courage because what have I done? I have overcome the world. So what has he done with our, here we are in turmoil, right? I'm just going to give me some little eyeballs. And, and And we're in turmoil, right? But what has he said for you to remember? Where, where did he send you the focus on that verse? He says, because who has done what? He has overcome the world. And what do we know about the end of the story? He wins. So although you may be in present circumstances of suffering, take courage, he says, but in the world you will have tribulation. You are going to have this time of suffering, right? But what does he want you to do? Keep your eyes on the goal. Do you see it? Just in one tiny verse already we can see that the, that the goal of what he's doing here in this particular book is he's letting them know that, yes, you are in time of tribulation, but don't forget what Jesus has already done for you, right? In, in just one verse, John sixteen thirty three. Okay, so in this world you will have tribulation, but Jesus has overcome the world. There's a worldview for you, right? That worldview sets our eyes upon Jesus rather than upon our circumstances. 
It, that's where you're going to get your source of strength. Okay, so what else do you learn about? Must every Christian endure suffering? Let's just build a few more points on this. What are you told is going to happen to you? You will be hated. How many of us have experienced that? And why do people sometimes hate you? They don't have Jesus. You know what? I, I thought about this a lot in one of the, in the, the, one of the Peter ones. I went and did some um, commentary reading in Matthew Henry. He's an ancient writer, and he's almost like reading King James, you know. So he's a little word. He's, he's, pretty t- he's pretty tough to read. If you go in there, that you almost have to break every sentence down and go, now what did he just say? Because he uses big words. But, and not just big words, but I mean <coughs> words that's not really in our language today. And so, um, he, but he, oh gosh, now I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? That you are going to be hated by the world. Okay, I'll go back to that later. All right. So you'll be hated by, you will be hated and by who? By the world. Yeah, by all in the world. Because, Why? Because of my name's sake, or because of my name, my name, that's right. Because of my name. That's in John 16, 22. All right. I love this in John 15, though. He explains to us something about the fact that people hate us. He gives us a word of encouragement by telling us what? The world hated him first. And I, I thought about that a little bit. It's like, okay, so they hate you, they hate me. How is that important? Well, how is that significant for us? Okay. And after all, who is Jesus and who, and who is his father? They're God, and they're God in perfection, in holiness and righteousness, and the world hates that? That's a mind blower. Okay, I might be a fallen, imperfect, you know, picture of what I should be. So I can understand why the world might hate me. But the world hated who? The perfect one, the holy one, the righteous one, the one who is full of goodness, the one who came and died for them. And if they hated him, then what he's saying here is, is, is in essence what? Yeah, there you go. Everybody's natural state is hatred of God. When you're born. There you go. That's good. That's a good point, James. Okay, so, so it, it, it lets us know that the, the enemy in this really is, quite honestly, we can even remove ourselves from the picture. It could be anyone. You could almost draw a silhouette of a human person, right? With no character, no name, no face, no, no identity. But simply because you have this dwelling in you, they will hate you, Right? that you will be hated. They are going to hate you only because of this. One thing right here. You have the Holy Spirit. We're fortunate in this country until recently we haven't been persecuted for Jesus in, in this
this country as much as people in other parts of the world. That's true. But that's changing. And I mean, we read the persecution that these people went through and affliction because of their faith. And it is because very it fast. Oh, and and don't we believe that it actually is coming? I mean, what was the question that the young man asked of those before he shot? Uh, Yeah, are you a Christian? It wasn't even what you know. He didn't care about anything else. He just said, "Are you a Christian?" And if and if the answer was yes, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. I do think that we have been in a sense of asleep for a while in America we yeah (laughs) probably more than more than just in a sense but but you know we've been waiting in history for a time and time frame when God is going to do what what is what are we waiting on for God to come and accomplish these things what did we learn in Romans 11 did you guys look at your chart that I sent to you and I had given you a reference in Romans 11 25 to 32 we're in this time frame called the church age, right? What are we waiting for until the, so that the church age will then come to its end and God will begin to have this time of the man of lawlessness and then establish his kingdom? What are we waiting for to be accomplished? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So we are in this time frame of waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Um, and apparently the world is not happy about this. And they don't even need to know who you are or what your face is about or, or you individually. But it feels like they're hating you individually. But it really has nothing to do with you, Diane. When they come against you and hate you, it isn't about you. It could be James. And it, or it could be Margaret. Or, or it could be Brenda. It could be anybody. It could be Sue. It could be anybody. All they care is... What's in you? What is the common thread in each one of you? Your personalities are different. Your, your temperaments are different. Your backgrounds are different. But they hate every one of you. Why? Because the common thread is the Spirit of God dwells within you. So Jesus says, they hated me first. That's a significant statement. What he's saying is, what they hate is God. And because you bear God in you, that's what they hate. So... Would you say that's a, a comfort in some way? I mean, it's not that it's not still painful when they come against you, but when you evaluate it and you step back from it and remove yourself from it and stop, you know, having a pity party about it and you start evaluating what's going on here, does it help you to know that they hated Jesus first? Yes. Right. Right, exactly. And now there's a follow-up question to this. Okay, they, they may hate you just because Jesus is in you, but then there's a warning he gives us in one of these verses where he says about suffering. If you suffer for the name of Jesus, see, let's go on back here. It's in Peter. In, in 1 Peter four fifteen, what does he say, though, is a warning to us. Everybody loves you, Diane. We love you, and you're an awesome person. You have amazing talents, and you have so much to give to this world. But what, is, what does God say to you? If you, are, if you are enduring suffering, what does he tell you in 1 Peter 4, 15? But make sure that you're not being hated because you actually did something wrong. Don't be hated by the world because you are 
a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. I would say that one probably can hit in a lot of characters. It's in 1 Peter 4, 15. There you go. So, so there is a, there does come a little bit of a whoops. I've got ink all over me. There comes a little bit of a warning that we later see. They hated the world, but he says, "But don't be hated. Don't be hated for evil doing." I'm just going to shorten it. That was First Peter. Give me the reference again. Four fifteen. 4.15. Okay, so that gives you first four, 4.15. So he does tell us, he says, must every Christian suffer? Yes. In this world, you have tribulation. You will be hated by all. And know that the world hated me first. But don't be hated because you actually did something wrong. Don't be going and doing stuff that's actually going to give you justifiable uh, aggression that comes against you. But rather, instead, if you're going to... Uh, endure suffering for my, for for me, because I'm in you, because God is present in you. Do so then in a way that does what for God? That gives Him glory. That's right. All right. So let's move on then to the next question. Then how will suffering prepare? So if if we are all going, to, he, he goes on in Second Timothy three. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Right. I want you to, one more point I want to put on here, though. It, we've already talked about it. 1 Peter 5, 8. What does it say about who the real, ev- who, who the real problem is here? The devil is really your true adversary. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate adversary is the devil. And that's in 1 Peter 5. Eight. Okay. Now, the next question we want to address in is how will suffering prepare us for the kingdom of God? If we're going to, we, now we know absolutely God says yes. So just so that you clarify that, if you've ever had a, a situation where you felt like coming into faith was going to eliminate all your struggles and was going to give you a life that was peaceful and full of joy. Uh, you know, yes, we, we're going to talk about that as well. But first and foremost, you have to understand that simply by coming into faith, you are bringing upon yourself an a adversary who at the root of it is Satan himself. And they don't care who you are really as an individual. They're coming after you because of one thing, the light that dwells within you, right? It's, it's that Holy Spirit that's inside of you that, is, that they are annoyed with. All right, let's do the next question. I know. <laughs> That's a little different song, but yes, I totally relate. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to ask, how will suffering, because one of the things Jesus tells us in his word then is that there is a reason for suffering. And he says that suffering is going to do, do something to prepare us. And we see this in, in our, second, our second Thessalonians passage, that you be considered worthy at his, at his coming. How will suffering then prepare us for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. All right. So she jumped right to James, James, which is our favorite book because we did James too not too, long, not too long ago. It produces endurance, right? Now, why is that important? Why do I have to have endurance? There you go. And that um, makes you all these other things. It follows on. It says because, again, there's like a, almost a term of conclusion in there. And that makes you what? Perfect. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that's very interesting. If you looked, we didn't do it, but word studies and those things. What does that tell you about the idea of, of having endurance have its perfect work in you? You have to have it if you want to come to this place where you are prepared, fully fitted, complete, brought to your, to your final goal, that which God prepared you to do and to be, right? He says it produces, and that producer, that makes you perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And, and Paul in Second Timothy, when he talks about the Word of God that's inspired, uh, he says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Yes. There you go. And, that, and that's a perfect uh, parallel verse to this one. And interestingly enough, in Romans 5, he, he says it develops character. Tribulation, it goes to character, and, can, and the character results in hope. Yes. So you start with the developing of your character because so you have suffering. You begin to develop the character. The character produces what? A proven character. Well, he says not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Character. character hope. hope and hope then does exactly what this does. The hope then takes you to that because you've had a renewed mind, you now know what God's truth is about life and about your design purpose as a Christian. You now have actually an agenda. You actually understand that life struggles are here to produce in you that which will eventually give you this hope. And the hope is what's going to give you the anchor in your, in your feet so that you don't get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or by every tr- uh, uh, um, suffering or persecution either, right? All right? It brings peace. It brings peace. I love that. We're going to talk about that in just a second here. Um, let's go to f- these First Peter verses. We did chapters 1, 4, and 5. That's on page 24 to 28 in your homework. Um, Trials produce something, they say there, right? Do you remember what it said? Are, are they actually proof of something? What are they proof of? They're proof of your faith, right? And what is the result then? Because it's proof of your faith, and then it results in what? Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Now, this is very interesting. Um, the question there would be, praise, glory, and honor for who? Jesus, ultimately. Do you think there's also praise, glory, and honor for us as well? 
Is there a verse that we saw in, in here that actually shows us that? Let me look and see, because I remember the one that says, um, i got to find my chart. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so praise, glory, and honor. Hold on. Let me go back to that. Hold on. Yeah, I, I got to get my page here open. Hold on a second. Okay. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day to be marveled at by all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Um, oh, here it is. So that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified where? In you and you in him. So does that not show us that we're talking about this? That's in chapter uh, first, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12. Because what we see then is actually a, a very interesting subtlety that's going on here in this statement about the glory at his coming, that there will be glory at his coming. Who is going to gain that glory? Who receives that glory? Well, when we develop this more fully... Of course, our knee-jerk is always, oh, well, it's glory to God, of course. And ultimately, it is glory to God, right? But here he breaks it down, and he even gives us a, a, a word and that joins the two to make you sure that you understand there are two things here that are going to be taking place. And that is that Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. So the first glory is I'm going to receive glory. What kind of glory is that talking about, right? We need to investigate that a little bit more. And he will be glorified in, uh, he will be glorified, I will be, yeah. Jesus will be glorified in me, in other words, in me by the things that I do, he's going to be glorified, and you are going to be glorified in him. So he get, ultimately, he gains the, the glory of it all because, obviously, the source of it all, the, the starting point of all of it is him, right? So ultimate glory goes to him. But there's some other kind of glory that's also being alluded to in this passage that is not expounded on. It doesn't, it's not getting developed in any way. We would have to go and do another study on this particular subject of what is it talking about that I'm going to have glory at his coming, Right? The first statement, it says in here um, that he talks about giving us relief when he comes from heaven. But verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God from which you are, indeed you are suffering. All of this is taking us to a place where we're, where we're approaching this time in history when something profound is going to happen, when there seems like there is going to be a dividing or a splitting of the hairs, and there's going to be those who will be glorified in Jesus and by Jesus, and those who are going to then uh, uh, reap a reward or a consequence, which is the penalty of destruction. And all of this has to do with their behavior in this world, how they respond to these persecutions and afflictions which are coming upon them. Um, one of the points I think is very exhorting, though, is, is ultimately when God comes, what is he going to do for those, those who are suffering? Concerning those afflictions, he's going to do what? Give you relief, right? Okay, so we have trials, um, our proof. So 
How will suffering prepare you for the kingdom of God? Well, they're proof of your faith, and they're going to result in praise, glory, and honor. So I'm going to put that on here. Result in praise, glory, and honor. And now what we see is that praise, glory, and honor is going to be both some for us and also ultimately then for God himself, for Jesus. All right? Yeah. Result in praise, glory, and honor. How will suffering prepare us? It results in praise, glory, and honor. The first time it it shows that it, it gives us this endurance, which then perfects us and makes us complete and lacking in nothing. Um. What else did you learn about that? How is suffering going to prepare us? Any other points? Let's go to Psalm 119 then, since you don't see any others. Actually, some of the others are more re- re- repetitious to what he's actually already said. He, he does say in First uh, Peter 5.10... After you have suffered for a little while, then God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's very similar to the uh, James 1.4. So I'm just going to put First Peter on here. Because he, it's almost a repetition of that First Peter 5.10. Yeah, isn't it amazing how the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth? (laughs) And it just keeps getting repeated over and over? Yes. Okay, so what did you see in Psalm 119 about suffering and how it prepares us? Yeah, we did. Uh, Page 29 on your homework. Very good. So actually, it's through those afflictions then that we come to understand God's precepts better, right? Why is that? How does your afflictions help you to get to know God's word better? Okay, because you come to a place where you have to trust on him and lean on him. Huh? It corrects you. And it will correct you. But how do you get to the place of no, that it corrects you? What happens when you get in big emotional battles, deep spiritual persecutions. What happens? Where do we go? We go to the Word of God, don't we? We run to God. And when we do that, when we run to the Word of God, because we're just desperate to hear from God something that's going to make sense of the mess that we're in and the things that are going on and the deep pain that's going on in our hearts, and we're flipping through the pages. And so uh, the Psalm 119, it says then it's, it's by afflictions that we actually learn God's precepts. Because what do we do? We seek them, right? Aren't we? We are pressed, so pressed from the pressures of the world and the pressures and the pain of what we're going through. That, the, that would you tell me this, when life is good and you're happy and things are going great, how much deep pressing do you do into the word of God? Not to the degree that, I mean, even us as precept students, and we're all studying a lot, um, and, I, and I would have to say, I mean, I put a lot of hours into my homework lessons and so forth, the things that I'm studying, but when I'm in really deep struggles, I go to God's word with a whole different agenda. 
And I really press into it. I mean, I am reading and crying and calling out to God, and I am flipping the pages, and I'm, my heart is, is either broken or crushed or in great fear. Whatever the circumstance is, I am seeking an answer from God. Right? Wow, we should have persecution every day. How much closer would we be to our Lord if we had those kinds of pressing, dire situations? Thankfully, we don't have to do that every day. But can you already see that where he says it's by afflictions that we learn God's precepts? That that's a principle that although our knee-jerk reaction is to say, I'm going to do anything I can to avoid that circumstance or that pain or that struggle. And yet, when we are in these deep moments of of frustration or fear or pain, that's when we really press into God. And therefore, we learn God's precepts in a totally different way than when we do on our carefree days of, oh, time to do my homework, open it up, look, 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 fill in the blank, answer the questions, move on, right? And we might have some great intellectual conversations with people, don't we? But are those the real truths that really hold us in life? When life's pressures do come, do you not learn lessons, the precepts of God's words through those afflictions in a way that totally transforms you as a person? Within you, you're washed clean. Your mind is, is set upon firmly upon God's eternal purposes right, in you and his glory. It helps you. There's another one we looked at. Was it Psalm 72? 73. Psalm 73. What did we learn there? We saw a a picture. Love that one. Don't you love that one? Okay. What's going on in that scenario? He was not with the Lord and was looking at other people getting successful and stuff like that. And things were not working right with him. But then he realized that those were not the right kind of things. And he really looked at the people who were rich and not following the Lord. And he started going back to the Lord and realizing that being with the Lord was so much more. Right, right. So So what pressed him to go into seeking the Lord initially? It says, until I enter into the sanctuary of God. Then I saw their final demise. That's when the light bulb came on, and I understood the bigger picture of all of this stuff that was going on in my life at the time. What pressed him into going into the sanctuary of God? He said, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. So he's thinking that he's been working so hard to be right before God, and you know, but hadn't seen any immediate reward for it. Okay. They're getting all right. So he's looking at his, his temporal world and not really seeing a lot of good fruit in the way that he would like to, the immediate gratifications of this world. And so that, in part, he sees, actually, he comes to a place in his sanctuary where he realizes that he was like a brute beast before the Lord in that, too, right? There you go. It ultimately, by going into the sanctuary of God, he actually starts to see an eternal perspective, right? He has an eternal view of 
all that's going on. So he's over here in time of persecution. He's looking around at the world. They're all, seems like they're getting fat and rich and life is good, right? And there he is, he says initially, in vain I am doing all the right things and living the way God wants me to and being kind and being generous and helping my neighbors. And, and they are over there just getting fat and do we not do that? I mean, I cannot imagine there's not one person in this room that has not struggled with that at some point or another in their life where we get so caught up in this moment of life and we forget the eternal perspective of things. And when he, what is it that pressed him then into going into the sanctuary? His despair, right? So again, a, a form of suffering or a form of persecution, sort of. Yeah. He makes a switch at some points, but... I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully. Wow. And he would just come, come Yeah. Back. How long are you going to forget? Yeah, that? yeah. So he enters into the situation first. Me, 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 right? But because he's pressed into God and entered into the sanctuary of God, pretty soon... His mind is brought around and cleansed by the Spirit's presence in him, and he begins to say, yes, but what has God done for me? Yes, that's exactly right. So Psalm 73 is very much the same way, and I love that psalm. I've used it many, many times um, to remind myself that I might look at this world in a temporal way, um, just feeling like, yeah, I'm, I'm living righteously and I'm doing what's right and it seems like we never get ahead and it seems like, you know, people are, you know, putting me down or leaving me out or what, whatever your scenario is at the time. Or I'm suffering. You know, we're going through medical issues. We've gone, we're going through the loss of loved ones in our family. We're going through marriage problems. We're going through financial struggles. Whatever it is, and we can get all caught up in the me, 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 right? And although this is not a persecution or an affliction, it is still a suffering, right? Because instead, what we start to feel like is crushed by looking out at the world and seeing all their successes is what 73 is saying. They're getting prosperous, and here I am trying to live right and getting nowhere, but is that the real reality? Is that the biblical view or is that the world view? That's the world's view. So all of a sudden, what gives him the biblical view? Well, the suffering pushes him into the sanctuary of God where he goes on his knees before the Lord in prayer. You and I can do it either in prayer or in the word itself, either way. Sometimes I run to, the, to God in his word looking for answers. Sometimes I just go to the Lord in prayer on my knees and I... And I you know, cry out to God. Either way, what happens is your mind starts to be turned and fo- refocused, right, upon what does God say about suffering, afflictions, and, and, and those people who come against you, right? The persecutions simply because I dwell in you. Remember, they hated me first. 
They hate you because you have righteousness dwelling in you, and light annoys the others. Susan. Right. That's right. Um, his yes. So what happens is the struggles that God allows, right? Those things, hopefully, if you're if you're His, they will turn you to press into Him. And once you make that turn and stop looking at me, 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 and start looking, God, what's going on? then God gives you a cleansed mind and he actually corrects, then you're thinking that's exactly what Psalm 119 says. By afflictions, we learn God's precepts. Yes. 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 So again, eyes are on where? So again, it seems like everything we're talking about says get your eyes on Jesus, right? Yeah, but he's working in our suffering. Yes. And if we submit to him, he wants us to trust him. Yes. Yes. Whether we die or we live, he will give you glory. Yes. You know. Right. Oh, and wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice if at the beginning of every suffering we encounter, we would be right there all, already? Yes. Right. Yes. Right. How much of the world sees God in us, but he's also, the world is watching how we respond and how we Yeah. 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 I just, you know, I think this lesson that we've done this week, if you really took the time to, to ponder it and, and see how it all really applies to you, is this, is this is such an essential part of our faith walk with God, and suffering is his tool in our life, and that tool, it does multitudes of things, but, but one of the things we're seeing here is that it helps us to learn a correct mindset, a correct thinking. It turns our eyes to the end, which is God has already completed it for you. It's already a done deal. He is victorious, and he is greater than he who is in the world, right? And once you get your mindset corrected that what you're working for is in salvation, which is sanctification work, that is ultimately going to be the glory that not only comes to you because at his coming there will be a time of reward, but ultimately it's glory for him. How much glory do we want to have for, to give to him? How much, you, t- you think about those crowns that are thrown back at the, feet of, uh, at the throne of God um, that Revelation talks about, throwing, casting their crowns before the Lord. How many crowns of glory will we have to cast back at him. Where do we get our crowns of glory? How do we attain them? Endurance that makes us complete, lacking in nothing, perfect, that results in praise, glory, and honor. So if you want crowns to throw at the feet of Christ at his coming, and if you yourself want to hear from him, there's a verse or a chapter in Matthew where he talks about giving out the talents, and when he comes back and he asks for accountability, what does he say to those who, who did well? Well done, my good and faithful servant, right? 
That's your glory, praise, and honor at his coming. Will he, when he comes, say, well done? There's, um, we probably, I think we have time. Let's do it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3, though, because I want you to see the, t- the, the place in Scripture where we're talking about where the things that we have done will go through a judgment to, to decide whether or not they are actually um, worthy of the praise, right? Worthy of the glory. So go to 1 Corinthians 3. Okay, start in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3.10. It says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I lay the foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which was laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if a man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, and it's speaking of this day when he is revealed from heaven that Thessalonians is talking about. That day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built upon it, remains, he shall receive what? A reward. If any man's work is burned up, in other words, there can be a loss. You can do works that... Um, you are telling people you're doing this for the Lord, but maybe you have ulterior motives. Maybe your ulterior motives are, are selfishness, right? Uh, and or maybe you're not building upon uh, the work. Maybe the work you're doing is not even really from the Lord at all. It was just you, right? And so, and so God is going to determine. He'll determine, is what you did for him truly? Did it bring him glory? It's going to go through the fire to be tested on that. But, and if it, if it lasts, you get a reward. But if it doesn't, what happens? If, it, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But what happens to him? But he shall be saved. So this is not talking about your salvation, that you're getting works for salvation. This is teaching us very clearly that this work of pro- this process called sanctification, which is going on in the believer's life from the moment of their spiritual birth, that one day at the coming of the Lord, when we are going to have our works taken and put through the fire, we will receive a reward. And it tells us in Revelation that then we turn to the Lord and we cast our crowns at the feet of the Lord himself. So, Suffering is a part of you gaining crowns. How does that change your perspective about the subject of suffering in your life? Well, okay. <laughs> well, all right, if you have to, Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, hold on a second. Craig? First thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It does imply, I mean, there is a strong, there is a strong impression and it's not that there won't be uh, equality and great love. And I mean, getting into heaven is, is good. You know, <laughs> that is enough. 
But the fact that God tells us that there is reward for persevering and enduring, what does that tell you? Should it be our goal to attain that which God says is valuable to us, has purpose in our life, and, and has an um, ultimate goal for us is that not only do we get to receive glory and, and honor and praise, but ultimately it's glory, honor, and praise for him, right? I'm sorry. Oh. Okay, keep going. All right, good deal. All right, so this particular passage, although it was we were not taken to it in our homework, this 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is that moment at the revelation of Jesus when we will be caught up in the air to be together with him forever. And then there's going to be what we call, this is called the Bema Seat of Christ. If you've never heard of that, it's, the, it's Jesus. This is the judgment seat for us. As Christians, because it's not judgment for our salvation, but it's judgment of what? The works that we have done. One of those works is the subject of suffering. How did you endure in it? In your, in, in your times of suffering and persecutions, is it bringing God glory ultimately? Is God going to say of you, well done, good and faithful servant? You did a good job with that. You kept your eyes on the goal. You kept your eyes on a heavenly perspective. Or will you find that that particular, and I can say in my life, there are some that are going to be just burned up because I didn't do them too good. I got into the midst of them and I stomped my feet and I shook my fist and I was not happy, right? Part of it is immaturity. Part of it is not pressing into God when you should be pressing into God, right? So, the great thing is that ultimately we all, I believe all, will receive crowns of some sort. No, I don't think that anyone will be empty-handed. I think there will be, um, there, we, there is always the crown of faith, right? The one of believing on Jesus. If you get in the door, you've got at least one crown. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. How many times did God, when when Israel was going through uh, their trials in the wilderness, for instance, how many times did he say, "Remember when"? How many times did David say, "I remember when"? When God did this with the bear and the lion and the whatever, because it's always it's remembering what God has done. But before you could remember what God has done, you have to go through a few things, don't you? So that you see the, the results and you see the... Pro- I can see when I did it well and I can see when I didn't do it well. And I can guarantee you, I like it better when I do it well. Because when I'm all done with that trial, instead of looking back on it and feeling ashamed, and there are, t- there are things in my life that I am ashamed of, but that kind of shame, fortunately, is all covered by the blood of Jesus. The justification work is done. But what I want to do is improve in my faith walk as a Christian daily so that I take the circumstances, whatever they are, and instead of going in panic and and acting out of emotion as the world would do, I want to glorify God, so I want to press into God. I want to enter into the sanctuary of God and get a right perspective, first of all. And I want to press into his word to say, God, what is your teaching on this subject? 
What does your word say I should be doing or how I should be handling this or what my mindset needs to be? At what point do I need to step back and just let go and say, okay, God, you've got to handle this. I can't. This is out of my realm. This is not even my responsibility. But he's going to show me that. What and where in, in that process maybe will God say, okay, Katie, now I want you to do this. I want you to go to them and, ha- and do this for them or do that for them or say this or, you know, fix that. I want you to get up off your chair and go and get busy doing this, this, and this. I mean, the Lord will indicate in your personal life, he will direct you. How often in the book of Acts did we see Paul and those others directed by the Spirit to either go or not go? And God says, I'm giving you my spirit for that very purpose, that he will guide you, right? So part of our, our, is exactly right, Carrie, that's exactly what part of our faith walk is, is about learning to trust him. And we learn to trust him by experiencing him in the things in our life. Part of that is suffering. And knowing that we are going to have tribulation, and Jesus told us so ahead of time, knowing that he says, just remember they hated me first, and that's really the reason they hate you. That at least gives you a starting place to start getting your feet back on solid ground and look at your circumstance, whatever it is, and say, okay, Lord, now what do you want me to do in this so that there's glory at the end of this? I want to have a reward that I can cast a crown at your feet. And that I not defame your name. That I not bring dishonor to your name. That's what Israel did when they were on the land. They blasphemed God's holy name by their behavior, by their life. And so God cast them out of the land, right? How should we then view trials according to God? We did a bunch of them. One of them is out of James that everybody started with. I think you actually started this with it. What is it we should do? Consider it all joy, right? I'm not going to write these down because I'm out of room, but they'll be on your list. What else? How should we view them then? As an opportunity? We're, okay. Open up First uh, Peter, your verses for First Peter. I, I'm sure that, that you probably have got most of it written out. Hold on. Okay. Rejoice. Keep on rejoicing, 1 Peter 4.13, right? What else? Do not be surprised when they come at you. I'm telling you, tribulation is going to come in this world. You are going to have tribulation. Don't be surprised. And then, therefore, then what does he also tell you to do? Don't be surprised, but, but be this. Be on the alert, right? Be sober. Be watching, right? Be, know that they are coming. Be prepared. Know in your mind today, if it's not settled in your mind already, settle it in your mind today, right now. You will have tribulation in this world. You will. Whether it be actual Christian persecution or whether it's just troubles of, and suffering of this life, you are going to have troubles. Settle it in your mind. You're going to have them. Now, how are you going to respond when they come? Are you going to count it all joy, understanding that this perfects you, makes you complete, lacking nothing, and ultimately it's going to result in praise, honor, and glory? Or are you going to do the opposite? It, it's helpful if you be sober, be alert, be on the aware, and know that it's coming. Because you're, what do they say, forewarned is for what? Forearmed. Because what is your forearming in faith? How do you get forearmed? 
Well, we, we do what we're doing right now. You stay in the Word of God regularly so that when you're in desperate mode, you're flipping through the pages, you at least know where you're heading, right? <laughs> but you do the, the preparatory work first. You always stay in the Word of God so that you're getting this renewing of your mind, and that's going to equip you, right? And then immediately, what did Jesus do when he was in desperate mode? He went, to the, he went immediately to the Lord. And he even said, Lord, can you take this cup from me? He, he understood where his strength was going to come from. He understood that God heard. And he also understood that, that God understood, right? So even though he knew he was going to the cross and he knew God wasn't going to remove the cup, yet he still in his humanness went there and said what? If possible, if there's any other way to do this, Lord, do it that way. But, but what? Not your will, but not my will, but your will be done, right? So that's for you and I, another verse we didn't look at, but that would be a good one, okay? How else should we view trials? Okay. All things work together for good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knowing that, setting that in your mind, being prepared ahead of time, knowing that all these things are working together for good because they're going to make me perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing ultimately if I endure. But if I don't endure, I have to do it again probably. Yes, yes. When my husband and son died, I asked God to let me use it for his glory. So that means to use it to do Yes, yes. I, I, I have the opposite kind of the other end of that is when my brother David passed away and I was a very young girl and I didn't really understand it at all. But now in hindsight, looking back on that, I can see how God used that incident in my very young tender life to help me come closer to God, come into that path to walk towards God. So all things do work together for good. Although I don't think that's the ultimate reason that God took my brother, but I do think it's one piece in the puzzle in my life. I just wanted it to be used. Use. Somehow use it for good. Death is a, is a sad, tragic thing, but use it for good. Yes. And there's a lot of us in this room. We've all experienced death. Someone de- dear to us is someone we feel like, like my brother who was very young. There's, you know, you can't explain that. Why? Right? But if you keep, if you do this, set your eyes on the, the eternal things, keep your eyes on Jesus, enter into the sanctuary of God, understanding that all these things are for a purpose to prepare us, to equip us, to make us perfect, right? Ultimately, that God would get praised. Then you have to look at that circumstance of death or maybe cancer or you know, financial dis- devastation in your family, whatever it is. You look at all of that and you say, Lord, wh- what are you doing here? And how can, I, how can I witness of you in a way that's going to bring you honor and glory in it? But at the same time, what are you allowed to do according to Jesus, his own example? You're allowed to go to God crying. You're allowed to have the expression of, of, of grief in your heart. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Very good. Ultimately, it brings all us this full circle, doesn't it? It's back to these persecutions end up bringing us into a state of hope. Okay, I'm going to stop with that for just a second. I just want to read you a little tiny bit. Uh, do I have time? Almost a little bit of time, right? You're laughing at me, I know. Okay. 
okay, here it is. This, this, I went, 10 seconds. First Peter 1, 6 to 9 is, is the passage, and I went into Matthew Henry's commentary, and in the end, I ended up with two points. There's a tug of war in every true Christian's heart. The joy and peace that we have that passes all understanding, that's the part that we get from our faith relationship, joy and hope. Why? It's joy in us because of what God has done for us and the hope of what he's promised for us. That gives us this confidence, doesn't it, to to keep moving. Yet on the other hand, once we're in faith, we also have this deep sorrow that we struggle with. The sorrow is that um, that we look around the world and we see all this pain and suffering, we know the answer. We know the answer, and yet they don't want it. We keep going back, and they still, they still keep basically slapping us in the face, right? And so th- because we know the truth, and the truth has set us free from the bondage of pain and hopelessness, we greatly rejoice, even though for a season we have been called to suffering by Christ, suffering for the sake of the salvation of others, suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus, suffering for the sake of our own salvation, and the refining work it will result in, and the glory we will enjoy because of it. Suffering has its purpose, doesn't it? And God's showing these Thessalonian believers that they need to persevere and endure in their suffering and, and as Peter says, count it joy because it has a goal, an end result, and that is at the revelation of Jesus Christ, there will be a place where God will say of you, well done, good and faithful servant. Nice.